I uh, came up here late this morning. I thought I was, I thought I was a little bit behind, and then I made a wrong turn. I became a lot behind, so I didn't have the opportunity to go back through uh, wor- the worship um, order this morning. Nor did I get a chance to go back through how you practice communion here. I had the privilege of, of preaching in lots of different churches in what I do at various times and serving communion in a lot of different places, and the, the exact details are a little bit different most places that I go, and so I often <clears throat> get to serve it in different ways, and it's, it's great, but also get confused at times, so please bear with me um, later on. Our scripture text is uh, Luke chapter 7. I'm going to be reading verses 36 through 50. I'll give you a little context. Um, it was mentioned to me that this was an interesting text. I will tell you that I'm, I'm, uh, we're doing a series right now with the college students at UK uh, going over uh, the life and teachings of Christ. And so this is one of, the passage that we were on rec- one of the passages that we were on recently. And so when John asked me to give him a, a text and a title, I chose the one that I was currently working on at the time. And so there's no, I picked this one for you, um, more than it was just what I was working on at the time. And in this passage, what you will see is, is something of an extravagant love that I wonder in my own heart if I often have and if we who have followed Christ for some time have as well. Beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table... In the Pharisee's house brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is and who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love more? Simon answered, The one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at table with him began to say amongst themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We pray. Father, we pray right now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, that these might be true and faithful in your sight. Father, we We need you to come by your spirit and speak to us through your word this morning, through your worship, that we might know you 
that we might know your love, that we might love you well. Father, we ask that you would do this according to the great mercy that you've given to us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. This is an interesting text, as was mentioned. What in the world is really going on? Well, this is a Lucan theme, really, um, to talk much about forgiveness of sins, even as it is in all the Gospels and all the Scriptures. And it is certainly a way of Jesus to make it very loud and prominent that He can forgive any, and that He loves to forgive. And as we look at this woman and we consider Jesus... I think the question that the text begs us is, do we love like this woman? With a kind of extravagant love. I'm going to lower this down just a bit. With the kind of extravagant love with which she loves. I mean, to set the scene, you kind of have to see a little bit of of the time. And and reading scholars mostly tell you that what was going on here was this was a prominent meal. The Pharisee, Simon here really wanted to get to know Jesus. It's easy to be critical uh, for us looking back into this picture, and we certainly will see Jesus' critique of this man, but he wanted, he wanted to be with Jesus. He wanted Jesus to come to his house. Not very many Pharisees did that. In fact, uh, one prominent Pharisee, we know Nicodemus, Nicodemus, some would say, but Nicodemus came to him in the, in the cover of night because Amongst the Pharisees, Jesus was not so popular, even though he was with the people. But he invited Jesus to a meal. And to invite someone to a meal in that culture was to, to, to say in many ways that you accept them. And so he had gone out of his way and he had, he had invited Jesus to a meal. And in these types of meals, we're told that lots of people could have been around to the, the people that were reclining at the table. Now I say reclining because... In, in this kind of an instance, normally a person would be, I think it's on their left side, on a type of a couch or a mat, leaning on their elbow at the table, and their feet would have been away from them. And this is why when the woman came over Jesus' feet, with his feet away from the table, it, it sets the picture, makes it a little more clear what was going on. But other people could have been meandering around, and they would have been allowed to listen to the conversation at the table. The conversation amongst those guests who were invited and being served. And so that kind of sets the picture. And as we, as we look at this text, if we want to have the kind of extravagant love that this woman has, we have to know our debt to Jesus. That's kind of what I have listed under here as, as, as main point one. We have to know our debt. What kind of debt do we have before Jesus? Certainly that's what Jesus tells in the parable. And what I think we can see here is in terms of our debt, we have to know we're sinners. This is not anything earth-shattering, I suppose, coming from uh, this pulpit. But looking at verse 39, this Pharisee did not seem to comprehend his debt to Jesus. In fact, he still, even though he wanted Jesus to come, and even though he went out of his way to invite him, unlike many of the Pharisees, he still invited him because he kind of wanted to see who Jesus was in the sense of judgment. Verse 39, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, after he saw what the woman did, he says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman 
this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. The thought doesn't seem to have crossed his mind that he himself was a sinner. It doesn't seem to cross his mind that he himself is not really worthy of Jesus coming into his house. In fact, it seems he has brought him in to evaluate him, and he has ignored the normal customs of the day. The normal customs of the day, Jesus says to him in verse 44, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. That would have been normal. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, no greeting. From the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. In other words, this Pharisee, so preoccupied he was with evaluating whether or not Jesus was a prophet or not, whether he was really worthy to be having all these people following him, he... He hadn't even performed the regular customs of the day. If we were to go back one chapter in the book of Luke, we might see what, Luke, what themes Luke is, pick, is picking up on. Luke 6.37 says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. You go on down. He tells a parable. It's a parable of Jesus in Luke 6.39. And Jesus says, Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? In a lot of ways, it's, it's a Lucan type of thing to tell a story that illustrates the teaching that Jesus has been teaching. And in the two preceding chapters, we have much in this story that re, to reflect back on. Might this Pharisee have heeded this advice? Did you not notice the log in your own eye before you went after the speck in this woman's eye? Jesus came and taught the law. And throughout the Gospels, he said to everyone, but particularly to the Pharisees, the law is a lot deeper than you thought it was. In Matthew, we find these words. Matthew five seventeen, the sermon, famous Sermon on the Mount, as it's known. Do not think that, just Jesus speaking, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a jot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless... Your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus goes on in this Sermon on the Mount. And he, he tells them, you've heard that it said, do not murder. But I tell you, you may not even be angry at your brother. In fact, you must go so far as at all possible, if I might paraphrase, to be at peace with all men. You must seek reconciliation. In other words, you can't even turn a cold shoulder to the person who is your enemy. You not only may not commit adultery, you may not have lust in your heart. And with regard to your enemies, you must love them. All of them. And in fact, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus is teaching and he says, What good is it if you love those who love you? Do not even the sinners do the same. 
What good is it if you lend money to those whom you expect to receive it back from? For even sinners do that. See, the point here is, Simon the Pharisee, you are a sinner just like this woman. And you have debt just like this woman has. And not only that, the assumption in your statement is... Not only do you not understand who you are in light of who Jesus is, who you are in light of what the law says, but you don't understand why Jesus came and who he is. You see, right before this, in Luke chapter 7, verse 34, we did not read this, but it says this, The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking. You say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yes, a friend of sinners. That's who Jesus was. And that is not what Simon the Pharisee expected a prophet would be like. If he were a prophet, he would know who it was that was touching him. Well, that's exactly the point, Simon. Jesus does know who's touching him. He knows exactly who's touching him. And she's welcome. In Matthew chapter 5, or Luke chapter 5, excuse me, two chapters ahead of this. Jesus has called a tax collector named Levi to follow him. Verse 30 says this, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners sinners to repentance. This is who Jesus is. He's come for sinners. Simon has misunderstood that he himself is one of those sinners, and he's misunderstood that the mission of the Messiah would be to come and save sinners. When I was in college, I ran um, track for the University of Kentucky, and I would fully claim to have been a follower of Christ, and I sought to follow Christ. I sought to share Christ with other people around me, and I was pretty proud of myself. I thought I was pretty good at it. In fact, some of my friends, one of my best friends on the track team, we were polar opposites. He was very much what anybody at UK would have considered um, a center of sinners. I could tell you many stories that are not worth telling um, about his exploits and the things that he did. But he and I would train together. We had the same event. We were of the same level and ability. And every single day, we ran together. And some of these runs might be eight, nine miles Um, And when you get in good enough shape, those aren't so difficult, and you're able to talk along the way. And so we knew each other pretty well. And so me and Alan uh, would train together. One day, it was about 15 minutes before practice was supposed to start, we were in the locker room getting ready. I promise this is a a locker room story that I can tell in this crowd. But we were in the locker room getting ready, and we were getting ready for the day. I'd already gotten dressed, and I was stretching a little bit, and... uh, and in walks um, a guy who's just taken this chemistry test, and somebody asked him how the chemistry, his name is Ben. He said, Ben, how was your chemistry test? How'd it go? And Ben said, oh, I think it went really well. I think I did well. He said, but I really feel sorry for Wes. We were studying last night, and he had no idea what he was doing. I think he bombed it. A few minutes later, in walks Wes. I turn around with a little smile on my face and say, Wes, how'd your test go? Wes just kind of hangs his head. I bombed it. I'm not any good at the chemistry. I tried. I failed. 
just kind of laughed, turned around. Didn't laugh hard, but had a little, had a little smile on my face, and some others did too. And, and all of a sudden, Alan turns to me. He looks at me, looks me over, turns his head a little bit, and he said, Brad, you're a real jerk. You put yourself off of this person who does all these good things, who is so good in how he treats other people and doesn't do things that we do in terms of parties and women, but you are a jerk. I haven't been able to put my finger on it until now. And now I see really clearly you're a jerk. Now, I wish at the time that I wasn't so self-righteous as to defend myself, but I was. If I had to do it over again, I wish I would have said, you got it right. That's exactly who I am, and you don't even know the half of it. But my pride and arrogance did not allow me to see that so clearly at the time. You see, I looked down at everybody else around me because I thought I was so righteous, such a good follower of Christ. And yet, when I read this story, I find I have a lot in common with Simon and less in common with this woman who knew herself and understood herself to be a sinner. As I was preparing to teach this text, we have a lot of students in our group um, with Reform University Fellowship of Kentucky who grew up in Christian homes. And sometimes they scare me. They scare me for the same reasons um, that, that I had in myself because I can see myself in them. I see what I was like in college. I see the self-righteousness. And it makes me know why their love for Jesus is often so cold. They don't see their sin. They see themselves as more righteous than the people around them. As if, as if like me, that all the good gifts they had didn't come from God. That their demeanor, their disposition, which might lead them away from certain sins, that their upbringing, that their parents, that their teaching, that their church, who had taught them all these things were not gifts given to them. But rather it was something that they had gotten on their own. Even preaching here today, I wonder if sometimes as parents, we don't have the same issues. Looking around at our neighbors around us thinking, I'm doing right by my children. Certainly that, that would not be wrong to do right by your children, to raise them in the ways of the Lord. But, but do you unwittingly teach your children to look down on others who aren't like you? And not just appreciate the gifts that Christ has given you. We have to consider that we might not have a white-hot love for Jesus like this woman because we are not appreciative of what God has done for us. That we have taken his good gifts and acted like they are our own and looked down on others, just like Simon does here. It's something that we must consider. So first, you have to know your debt to Jesus, to love him extravagantly. And secondly, you have to respond to the forgiveness of Jesus. It's clear that her joy is rising out of great gratitude for what Jesus has done for her. You see, unlike Simon, she knows who Jesus is. You see, in verse 37, we are told this, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. What was that to do? She knew exactly. She wanted to anoint his feet 
Why? Why does he want to do that? Well, you have to be careful when you read this passage that you don't get it backwards. Because when Jesus proclaims at the end of verse 47, Therefore I tell you, your sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he was forgiven little, loves little. You can begin to think just because it's because of her great love that she's being forgiven. And that is not the way the text flows. Because that is not what Jesus has said. Because the point of the little parable he told in between to Simon was this. Whoever is forgiven much loves much. We know this even more so because Jesus says your faith is saved, you go in peace. It's about faith in his forgiveness. It is that which has brought her great love. She knew exactly who Jesus was. He was this friend of sinners. He did have the authority to forgive sins. He did so earlier, two chapters before. We don't know if she had, she had heard of this or she would had an encounter with Jesus, but it's obvious that when she brought this alabaster ointment to Jesus to, to wash his feet with it, we're told that these alabaster jars have really thin necks. And in order to pour it out, she would have had to break the jar. The, that type of jar was very precious to Jewish women. Um, with the little thin neck that the perfume was able to, to cover different types of odor. And if we are right to assume, as almost every scholar does, that her occupation as a lady of the night, that that jar would have been very important to her. It represented her beauty. And she was quite willing to give that up to show her love for Christ. But the reason why she did this was because she knew his forgiveness. And she loved him for it. She knew how big her debt was. Simon didn't understand that he had really any debt. In fact, Simon might have said, Really, Jesus, you expect me to weep over you? Really, Jesus, you expect me to show this kind of lavishness upon you in the company of other people? Really? And Jesus might have said, Well, yes. Yes, I I want your worship. You should worship me. And this man didn't want that type of religion. He wanted something else, more intellectual. Something more distant, maybe. Not quite as personal. But Jesus knew this woman personally. She knew him as a friend of sinners. She knew she was a great sinner. And that Jesus had forgiven her. And Jesus proclaims, your faith has saved you. I'm going to go a a little bit of an interesting route, at least in my own mind. I think often in our own circles within this denomination and like-minded denominations, we struggle greatly with doctrinal pride. And it can keep us from loving Jesus extravagantly. There's a story... And I'll try to show you what I mean by that. There's a story of a, um, of a man who was, uh, who was parachuting. And he, um, he had, is a very experienced parachute guy. I don't know what he Parachuter? Is that the right word? Very experienced as a, as a man who um, um, was skydiving. And, and he knew much about the history of skydiving. And when he jumped, his, his, um, his chute didn't open. And in fact, I'm not sure exactly um, the details of the story, but... When, he, um, when his chute did not open, he, he had passed out so that he couldn't hit his secondary 
prepares you. However, there is a, a device that um, on these secondary parachutes that you can have where by which at a certain time and point, acceleration I guess, that secondary parachute will open. And this man was, um, had passed out, but the secondary parachute opened anyway. And when he was being interviewed shortly after this happened and he had survived, he began to thank um, the man who had, devi- who had um, invented this device that would open up like this automatically on the secondary parachute. And he said, this man has saved my life. Now, at this point, he has made the classic mistake that many of us, I think, make. Um, that man did not save his life. The secondary parachute saved his life. It wasn't the man. I think we make the mistake often of being excited, arrogant, and self-righteous about our own faith. In other words, the emphasis of our faith is on our faith that we have rather than what the object of our faith, that is Jesus. In other words... Our faith doesn't save us. Jesus saves us through our faith. It's real subtle, but it actually has huge ramifications. What I brought up when I was speaking of Reformed circles, I have this often with students, I have this in my own heart greatly, is that we tend to talk about our salvation and talk about exactly how it happens and have all this doctrinal pride to get it so precise and look down on others who don't have it as precise as us, so much so that we forget the object of our faith, who is Jesus, which is what all that doctrine is supposed to be about. So much so that the focus ultimately becomes on us and how great we are rather than Jesus and how great he is. You may not struggle here, but I definitely do. And I think it's something that prevents me from the type of love this woman has. She just knows Jesus has forgiven her sins. At the end of the day, all our doctrine is supposed to point us to just that. Christ himself. The one who forgives sins. The one who grants his own righteousness. You have to know your debt. You have to respond in faith to the forgiveness of Jesus. And last... You must follow Jesus in his mission. I I think I would be amiss to say, if we didn't look at this text as a whole, um, this text as a whole being that, why is it here? What is Jesus trying to say? In the different ways in Luke in which this type of story is told over and over again, he wants us to know that Jesus is after the sinners and after the lost. If we were to turn... Over there, we, we read it already, that, that part in, Matt, in Luke chapter 5, where Jesus says, quite clearly, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What this means for Jesus is that he often found himself amongst sinners and tax collectors. He wasn't afraid to associate with them. In Luke, tax collectors are mentioned over six times. And in every case, Jesus mentions them with an accepting attitude. One of the things that we need to understand about tax collectors is they were considered extortioners and conspirators. Co-conspirators with the Roman government and extortioners of their money, taking more taxes than they were supposed to. And so the people regarded them as murderers and sinners. In Jewish courts, testimony from a tax collector was not allowed. 
They were nobodies. Nobodies in many of the same ways that this sinful woman was in the town. She was a nobody, an outcast. But tax collectors were rich nobodies. Ten days before Jesus' death, we have another story. And it is the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, a wee little man, who was the chief of tax collectors, apparently. We don't know exactly what that means for his area, but we know he was in some type of arch tax collector. And Zacchaeus, he too wanted to see Jesus. Luke 19, verse 5, I'm going to read if you want to turn there. Feel free to. Beginning verse 5, And when Jesus came to the place where Zacchaeus had climbed his sycamore tree, he looked up and said, said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he heard and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. This is the crowd. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Do you notice that? Where he says to Zacchaeus, I must go to your house. Why? We're told in verse 10. I'll begin in verse 9. And Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to your house, since he also is a son of Abraham, a son by faith. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Why did he have time for this man ten days before his death, burial, and then resurrection? Because his mission was to come for sinners. His mission was to seek and to save the lost. The question, I think, for all of us is, as a church, do the lost find an open home? Do they find acceptance with us? Do they find, they seem to be quite comfortable around Jesus. Are they quite comfortable around his church? Recently, I read the story of a prostitute in a book recently. She had come to a man in dire, stra- come to a man in dire straits. She was homeless. Her health was failing. She was unable to buy food for her and her two-year-old daughter. Through tears, she confessed to the man that she had been renting out her daughter to be used by immoral men in order to support her drug habit. The man could hardly stand to hear the details of her story. He did not know what to say to her, and he finally said, Have you ever thought of going to a church for help? He writes, I will never forget the look of pure astonishment that came across her face. She replied, the church, why would I ever go there? They would just make me feel worse than I already do. Now certainly that's a little bit of prejudgment on her part. But I do wonder, if that woman walked into my place of worship, would I be accepting of her? Would I run to her to make her feel welcome, to feel like here is where she could find help. If we are going to be on mission with Jesus as a church, we must be friends to sinners. They must enjoy our company. The poor, the sick, the lame, the outcasts, and the sinners, they enjoyed the company of Jesus and were stirred by his message of forgiveness. And parents, I would ask this question. Do your children see you reaching out to sinners? Do they see them enjoying your company? I know it's a dicey proposition. I have a four-year-old daughter. At some point in time, somebody's going to hold my feet to the fire on this. Will I be a person who has allowed sinners in our company? Will my daughter learn from me how to love 
sinners? Will she see it modeled and exampled? Will she see it in her church? Will she see us acting like Jesus on his mission to seek and save the lost? The conclusion of Luke's gospel, we find this. In Luke 24, 45, this is the two men on the road to Emmaus. You may remember the story at the end. Then he, Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise again from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is our message as a church. This is a place where sinners can find a home and be changed. This is not acceptance such that we never see actions change in people. It's the kind of acceptance that's so warm and so loving that people's actions change. That's what happened with this woman. That's what happened with Zacchaeus. He, he returned half he owed. He returned all he owed fourfold and then gave away half of his possessions because knowing Jesus was so much better than anything he had in wealth. But this woman, she gave up everything to follow Jesus because in him she had life. Do we respond with this kind of extravagant love? I'm reminded of a professor I had in seminary. He wrote a book on evangelism. He lived that book on evangelism. He lived what many of us should live in terms of uh, being a man who understood himself to be a sinner. One time I had a friend ask him, uh, you know, he asked him, you know, if he ever yelled at his wife or ever argued with his wife. And he said, no, he never yelled at his wife. And he said, well, what do you do when, you know, she brings up something and you're so frustrated and so angry? And he just commented, he said, well, I just assume that she's right. <laughs> I laughed. That's not me. And, and I think I understand what was going on. This man was not a pushover. He's not a pushover. He just knew himself well enough to know that anything his wife might bring, he probably had some sin mixed up in it. And I suspect that he was able to claim that for his own, and I suspect that when he did, his wife would confess her own sins. And her own judgmentalism, her own inability to get over whatever happened, such that their marriage was sweet with the gospel. This man was, in the same way, sweet with many around him with the gospel and the good news of Christ because he was so taken by what Christ had done for him. He knew his sin, he knew his Savior, and he wanted others to know the same. He had an extravagant, and does have an extravagant love for Jesus. May we, too, have the same. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would take these words and these meditations this morning. And whatever has been said from this pulpit that is not worthy of you, I pray that you would take it from our minds, or at least allow us to evaluate it as false. But whatever has been true whatever is noble and whatever is right, right. Father, I pray that you would write it on our hearts and grant it in our minds and allow us to think about it and meditate upon it so that we might flesh it out in our lives that the world may know that Jesus is a friend of sinners, one who seeks to take away that sin and give new life. We pray that that message would sink deep into our souls that we would not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, that we might receive it with great gladness and with great boldness, proclaim not ourselves to everyone around us, but our, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask these things.